This podcast is brought to you by Fear Free, the initiative that takes the pet out of petrified and puts treat into treatment. Learn more at fearfreepets.com. I'm Steve Dale, and this is your Fear Free podcast series. I'm joined today by Dr. Philip Richmond, CEO and founder of Flourishing Phoenix Veterinary Consultants. Today, we're talking about burnout in the veterinary industry. And boy, oh boy, this has always been a topic, I think, Dr. Richmond. But why is it now so prevalent today? I mean, and not only for veterinarians, but technicians, nurses, I mean, and and anyone who works on a team. Every time you turn around, it seems someone is leaving. And often the explanation is, quote, unquote, burnout. Why, why now? Right, right. It's a fair question, Steve. Um, veterinary medicine has, we've had some challenges, certainly, you know, over the past, say, 10, 20 years with some practice efficiency, other types of things like that. And the pandemic, I mean, we, I think we all hear that the pandemic really brought a lot of those things to the surface. And let me say this is when we talk about burnout, it's important to understand what burnout is. And burnout is a systems issue. Uh, burnout really has to do with chronic workplace stress. Uh, and I know you're you're a, a behavior expert. Um, human beings have the we have the same limbic system as our our canine and feline friends. That chronic workplace stress, those stressors over time, really have a deleterious effect on you know on our well being. Essentially, burnout is where our job demands outweigh our capacities and our resources to do do the job. I, I jokingly, like I have the utmost respect for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I jokingly will say, even he would have trouble being quadruple booked on a on a Saturday with fifteen minute appointment slots, uh, you know, to uh, to find find peace and serenity. So it's it's when these job demands overwhelm us that it overwhelms our capacity and that that's where we really get into trouble and so important to say burnout is is a systems issue it's not a it's not a personal uh personal issue so you kind of touched on this so Mm -hmm. uh, we're serviced in the building i live in a condo building in chicago by an elevator company uh and they are going out of business and the primary reason for that is because their employees are leaving and they can't get the right. expertise to do the job. Why are so many leaving? We ask the answer, burnout. Uh, in the restaurant industry, it's rampant. And it's uh, so it's not, I, I think it's something common in America that's going mm-hmm. on today. But it seems as though, and maybe my perception is inaccurate, it seems as though the veterinary world is being hit harder by it than other professions. I would say that's it's a fair fair assumption. There was recently the AVMA did uh, did a paper on burnout and the economic cost to the profession. What they found in that survey, which was striking, was a, about eighty seven percent of U.S. veterinarians. When we used a survey called the ProQOL, which actually me- measures compassion, satisfaction, compassion, fatigue, which I have a feeling we'll talk a little bit about uh, later. Compassion, satisfaction, compassion, fatigue, and burnout. 87% of US veterinarians on the burnout portion of that survey scored either in the moderate or high level. 
that is that is overwhelming. You know, that is a that is more than a canary in the coal mine. Uh, and so, you know, the question is, is, you know, why is that happening? And one of these questions we asked is, you know, the, the pet population increased, our ability to see patients decreased with curbside. Um, you know, then we did burnout. We had attrition in the profession. Then we're having trouble meeting the demands with, uh, with new, new veterinarians and uh, new, new professional staff. Uh, all of these things come together to create a situation where the job demands uh, potentially and, and realistically are outweighing our capacities uh, to, to perform it effectively. I want to talk more about how to prevent burnout. And yeah, yeah. I do want to talk about compassion fatigue. But first of all, mm -hmm. I want to talk about one other topic, Dr. Philip Richmond, that's you. Yeah. What began as far as your own personal interest in this topic? Right. So if if me today hopped in hopped in the time machine and shot back a few years and and told told younger me uh, fourth year in vet school, hey, guess what? Guess what you're going to be doing in in a number of years? You're going to be working on well being in the profession. Uh, I probably would have you know kind of laughed that off. Uh, I just didn't didn't have that on my radar at all. What happened with me is about a year and a half out of school. Uh, I was working about 80 hours a week, self-imposed burnout. Let me say this is that my my practice, the practice that I worked at uh, was very attuned and did not did not want me to do that. I was working on my days off at another animal hospital. And on the weekends, I was picking up emergency shifts uh, at a local local emergency hospital. So I was working about 70 or 80 hours a week, untenable. Uh, you know, and I just as a new graduate, I was put into situations just by the sheer number of cases that I was seeing uh, that were outside of uh, my scope of experience, stressful situations, all of this. I got to a point where I had one tool in the toolbox that I've had since you know, I was 15 or since I had since I was 15. Um, and that was alcohol and substances. And that was the only way that I had to to deal with the the imposter syndrome, all of these overwhelming feelings, the anxiety. And thank God my my colleagues recognized what was going on with me because it got to a point in 2008 where uh, I was I had a plan to end my own life. Wow. And so my, you know, by by no accident. Uh, the people that I worked with knew what was going on, knew the resources to get me to, and really, frankly, helped save my life. And I'm just very, very, very grateful to uh, Dr. Paul Jansen, Dr. Nanette Wagner, and uh, Alex Soto, who was our one of our lead technicians who actually was the at the forefront of helping to save me. I went into a treatment center. I was in a treatment center for about three months, and I was forced to just learn about the the ways that I had, how I was living in the world, and then how I was practicing veterinary and veterinary medicine kind of upside down, you know, just go, 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 thinking that my energy levels were, uh, you know, never were, were unlimited, uh, and that I could take on more than I actually could. And I actually learned these skills of resiliency through 12-step recovery, that helped me learn how to love veterinary medicine again, learn how me, how, how I learned how to be in, in and of the world again, if you will, and worked very much with other medical professionals uh, in recovery because of the stigma of alcohol and substance use disorder in, in both the human and, and veterinary professions. 
uh, you know, it's something I was doing for about 10 years. And then about four or five years ago, I got involved with the FEMA and said, do we have a well-being committee? And they said, no, but we'd love for you to <laughs> love for you to, uh, to start one. And so I really started delving deep into how do we, how do we help our, our colleagues with not only burnout, but, you know, moral distress, compassion, fatigue, creating the profession that we all grew up thinking that we, we wanted and it's there and we can do it, but we have to be very intentional. We have to, we have to have some specific tools. And these, these were the tools, these skills of resiliency, and then also the, the, the things that we need to see in the workplace uh, with on an individual team and organizational level to support well-being that, that we need to have. And so that's, that's where I've been passionate about is not only being passionate about the, the science of, of well-being and in the workplace, which is fascinating to me, the science of, of resiliency, um, but also my lived experience was is that these things genuinely saved my life. And I know that there are many of my colleagues that are out there that are you know, in the same same spot, potentially not even with, with alcohol and substances, but that same overwhelming feeling of, I don't know if I can do this for 30 years. Hmm. So I just, I love this profession and I want it to be around for my kids. And, you know, I want to help, help be part of the solution. Yeah. That's quite a story. So I have two questions from that. Yes. One, is there a lesson here? You mentioned the names of the people who essentially saved your life. Mm -hmm. Could more people, should more people, if they suspect something is going on with that individual, speak up, speak out. And if so, how do they go about doing that? There, therein lies the, the systemic issue in the profession when it comes to stigmatization of use disorders, stigmatization of mental illness. Uh, and then the question, you know, what, what if, I, if I report this person or if I'm concerned about this person, let's say a veterinarian, is something going to happen in this person's livelihood? Is, it, is something, you know, irrational fears about, you know, licensing and and fitness to practice issues, which are not there. I mean, we're all human beings, and and there are programs in place to to protect our license while we while we heal. The other thing that's very interesting, Steve, is that if we look at there was a big study that was done back in '98 uh, by the CDC and and Kaiser, and it looked at these events that happened to us in childhood. They call them adverse childhood experiences. And they, they have 10 of these listed, you know, where did you live with a parent who had an alcohol or substance use disorder? Did you ever see one of your parents physically abused? Um, you know, talking about abuse and stresses that happen as children. Of these 10 things, if we answer yes to four or more of those, we're seven to 10 times more likely to have a use disorder. We're six times more likely to have depression. We're six times more likely to have anxiety six times more likely to have ADHD, all these things that happened to us well before we were veterinarians, um, that that's part of, part of the message that I want, want to help get out and that we're starting to do in veterinary medicine. They're starting a little bit more to do that in, in human medicine, but these experiences help let us know, Hey, I might be at a, a bit of a higher risk, you know, for these things. Like let's, let's, let's open up the discussion instead of, it, you know, instead of stigmatizing them, one of the beautiful ways that they describe this, Oprah actually just 
uh, had a book that came out about it is instead of asking the question, you know, with someone who has a mental illness or somebody who has a, a alcohol or substance use disorder, instead of saying, what's wrong with you? Being very empathetic and saying, um, what happened to you? And what happened when, when your brain was forming that, that put you at a higher risk? And I say all those things just to help change. It's one of the ways I think we can change the conversation and, and decrease the stigma of use disorders and some of the things that we see with mental illness in, in the profession. So is it the uh, chicken or the yeah. egg, as they say? So you say, 100%. And, and so let me ask you, if, if this mm-hmm. happens early in life, long before you even think about, although statistically, many veterinary professionals have thought about being a veterinary professional when they were five or six years old, but they really didn't know what goes into the profession, what schooling really is like at that age. Of course, you can't possibly know. So if all of these things happened at that age, are people more likely who have these things happen to them for whatever reason? Maybe they are more empathetic. I don't know. But for whatever reason, are they more likely to go into veterinary medicine or are people in the profession, period, more likely to have these sorts of mental health issues, which include a higher suicide rate than many other professions? So let, let me two two part uh, answer to that. Let me first say one that I am not a mental health professional. Uh, I'm a I'm a veterinarian who has a number of certifications in trauma and resilience and positive psychology and a number of these things that I find fascinating. I am, I like to think of myself as an educated peer supporter, uh, you know, that, that can, can help my colleagues, but I'm not a mental health professional. The mental health professionals in veterinary medicine actually tried to answer that question. That very question, I think in 2016, if I remember correctly, Elizabeth Strand from university of Tennessee, Jen Brandt, we know from AVMA uh, and the, the, rest of the authors on the study escaped me, but they looked at, that was one of their thoughts, is do ACEs, do these adverse childhood experiences, create a situation when we're younger that make us go towards the helping professions? And if I remember correctly, I don't wanna misinterpret the the results, but uh, after talking to Dr. Strand, I, I think they, they weren't able to find correlation behind that. They did find some uh, pretty, pretty interesting data, but they didn't end up finding a correlation to that. And when it comes to adverse childhood experiences is, is certainly multifactorial. It doesn't, doesn't mean that just because we've experienced those things, there are other protective factors, you know, how uh, mentoring that we've had, volunteering that we've had, exposure to education, um, other, other avenues of external support that actually help, help protect us. Uh, but to answer your question about the rate, I also want to say is that when it comes to the numbers, our, our risk is, is certainly higher. Um, but we're, you know, when it comes to the, the numbers, when we look at those, we're, we're certainly one of the medical professions that have a higher rate of, of choosing to end our own life, but, uh, but we're not the highest, if I remember correctly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think correctly. there's, yeah. Sorry. It depends where you read as to what the numbers right, really right. are. Now, uh, yeah. uh, another question that goes, that occurred to mm-hmm. me as you're talking, uh, you, you said that 
you felt that you were, and these are my words, I, I don't want to put words yes. in your mouth so much, but that you were overworked and you just uh, were stretched to the limit and you didn't have, well, if if you talk to veterinarians of a certain age, mm-hmm. a certain vintage, yeah. uh, and I, I'm thinking older millennials, the very oldest of the millennials on, mm-hmm. who practice veterinary medicine, mm-hmm. If cell phones were around, they did give out their cell phone number. They gave out their home phone numbers. Some of them practiced before emergency clinics even appeared. And they were also the emergency veterinarian on call 24-7. The suicide rate wasn't what it is now, or at least maybe not reported. And and the, the burnout issue wasn't what it is now. And many of those veterinarians have told me, what are they talking about? Who, quality of life? You know, I work 60 hours a week. I'm glad I did. How do you respond to that? Yeah, so, you know, the it, it ends up being is what it's subjective to each person then is to say, you know, because I, I that was those were my mentors. You know, that was why I was working that many hours as I, you know, I thought I should like, you know, I thought my, I thought my, my graduation present was that I got a job. Um, and so what, what is the, what is the defining factor when we say that we're not burned out? How do we know, you know, and this gets to what, what do we need to be doing in the profession is, are we measuring these things? Because if you would have asked me just to not exactly correlate these two things, but if you would have asked me 15 years ago, you know, do you have a problem with alcohol? No, no, I don't. And that's me self self assessing my own situation. You know, if we ask potentially somebody that's working 14 hours a day, like, are you having problems with burnout? No. And in that moment, they might not, but chronically over time, are we, are we having situations where if we're to be honest with ourselves, are we feeling a little detached from, you know, our family? Do we start, are those people that are working 14 hours a day, are they 100% empathetic towards their clients, you know, in, in reasonable situations? Or are we starting to get a little increased cynicism or a little bit of a negative outlook? Do we sometimes have a decreased sense of satisfaction? Are we getting getting more tired than we usually are? That you know we we're sleeping more, but we're just we're just feeling that we're you know we're just not getting enough rest. You know, if, are we are we procrastinating? Are we starting to come in late a little bit? These are things that are signs of burnout. But if we're not assessing those things, we don't we don't know that we're in burnout. We don't know that we're sh- showing signs of it. So it's hard to self-assess if we're not, you know, if we're not taking uh, some of these evaluations. And I would say, Steve, that's one of the things I hope that we're going to be doing on a more regular basis on, on an individual team and organizational level for well-being is measuring the well-being and measuring burnout, you know, in our teams. Because if we've got one person that's in burnout, we can almost guarantee that you've probably got about 25 to 50% of your staff that are close to it. So what are some things we can do to prevent that from happening in the first place? Yeah. So on a, and, and if we look at it as a me, we, and us, if we look at an individual level, if we look at the, the team level and we look at the organizational level, one, are we, are we measuring it? But 
on a, on a me level, on an individual level, we can look into resilience training. You know, are we able to regulate our emotions and not discount and shove down our emotions, but actually regulate our, our emotions appropriately? Do we have a strong sense of meaning and purpose? That is one of the things that we can look at. Or do we know why we're doing what we're doing every day? Can we have an outlook that is one of realistic optimism? So that is not... Uh, not saying you know everything is is roses all the time, but can we reframe situations and try to try to see a different different outlook? And then are we able to you know for instance if if I send my boss a text message and she doesn't text me back, do I start thinking oh I know you know I know this is she's mad at me, I know she's angry, I know she's she's upset. It's probably that client that I saw about three weeks ago, and I start spiraling downward, and then I end up, you know, she she texts me at the end of the day. She's like, "Oh, hey, sorry, I saw your text. I was helping a turtle cross the road when when you called, and I forgot to text you back." Well, I just went through that whole rigmarole in my brain as though she was actually mad at me, and I potentially might get fired because there's an eighty eight percent overlap in what our brains think of versus what we actually perceive. So on an individual level, can we throttle some of those down? But that's not enough. Are we working well communication? Do we have a safe space to communicate as a team? Do we have this concept of psychological safety? That's another thing that we can do on a team level. And then organizationally, are we are we looking at burnout in our employees? Are we making sure that we're doing things very efficiently? That's something that our human colleagues, our physician and, and nurse colleagues in human medicine, they are so overloaded with electronic medical records. There's there's so much redundancy that they spend such a significant amount of time of their day just on these medical records. What can we do to streamline? And that's where some of the things that we talk about with technology uh, that certainly can help veterinary medicine because we're you know we we certainly have a lot of room to to improve there. And how can we utilize our technicians efficiently, you know, as, as veterinarians, you know, how can we give, give these responsibilities and give these, uh, these duties to our, our trained, uh, trained staff, but also make sure that we're not burning them out, that we're, we're staffing appropriately. So these are things that we just, we need to be able to keep those at top of mind when we're making systems level or strategic decisions for our practices or, or our companies is how is the, how are these decisions going to affect our employees? We, and we need to be able to be doing that in the, in the C-suite and the director level uh, areas. Well, we could take some of those topics you just rattled off and do a separate podcast on those, such as <laughs> we know that licensed, certified, and registered veterinary technicians want more responsibility. So, Yes, you're making employees happier. Well, how does this all tie in? This is, after all, a fear-free podcast. How does this tie in right. with fear-free? So certainly one of the things, so one of the things that I find fascinating, so I just, I actually just recently took my fear-free certification. And so, so much of the science, if we think about this, this is where the nerdy stuff comes in, is we can very much use the principles that we use in the practice for fear-free with our patients, we can literally use it. In fact, I could almost give a talk in the beginning and just take out the dog picture and put in a human picture and the stress response is the same. The cortisol, the epinephrine, norepinephrine, all, 
all of these responses are the same. And if we know that we want to decrease the number of times or the amount or the severity of that stress response, if we take that, those upper level concepts and put those into the workplace, that's game changing. And in fact, I would say, fortunately, the US is, a, is the only major country um, that doesn't have something like that, uh, a standard on the books. Canada has a standard for psychological health and safety in the workplace that you protect the psychological health of your, your workers, uh, the same as you do uh, from physical uh, physical risks. You know, wearing, wearing, you know, like when we go in and we take x-rays, we have to wear a lead shield to protect ourselves. You know, we should be able to be doing these same things, looking at all the, the tasks that we have in a hospital and do a what's called a psychosocial risk analysis and say, where where are our where's our staff at risk of having chronic stress? And then how can we step in and, and change those processes? Well, and I could very add, much uh, like free, very much like fear free. Yeah, I much I, like free, yeah. I, I could even add to that that at a very simple level, if the client comes in and the patient comes in and it doesn't mm -hmm. take 47 veterinary technicians, including those who have the day off and those from other practices that you call in to hold a little chihuahua down. And right. instead the chihuahua says, oh, I'm wiggly and I'm happy. That makes everyone right. around the table happier. And I don't know right. anyone who's gone into the veterinary profession. I've never met a single person yet who hasn't gone into the profession to help pets and right. and also to help entire families, which is what veterinarians do. Right. So I have uh, two more questions for you. Compassion yep. fatigue, that's mm -hmm. one of them. So, yep. well, is that a contributing factor to burnout or is that a completely different topic? Well, so uh, I'm gonna get a little wonky here. So if we're, if we're actually talking about compassion fatigue, it's actually the other way around is that technically, uh, the definition of compassion fatigue is secondary traumatic stress, which we'll get into in just a second, and a combination of burnout. Those two things together create the situation in us called compassion fatigue. So it's, it's, a, it's an element. Burnout is actually an element of compassion fatigue, um, not necessarily a contributor to it because it's a burnout is a component of, of compassion fatigue itself. But remember, burnout is a is a systems issue. Burnout is not a it's not a mental illness. It's not, uh, you know, it's not a lack of uh, tools necessarily. Although resi individual resilience skills can can help raise up our our uh, resiliency to burnout. But it's a it's a job demands on one side, you know, one side of the scale, um, capacity and and job resources on the other. And if that scale is tipped tipped too far over time. Uh, that's going to lead to burnout. Um, but the the other thing is the the secondary traumatic stress. Uh, you know, how many times are we, you know, involved in rooms where we have potentially traumatic situations where we have you know hard euthanasias or we see ethically or potentially emotionally challenging situations? I'll say too, this gets a, a, a little bit more wonky too because we start talking about what's called moral injury or moral distress. Which in which is probably more of an issue than compassion fatigue. Uh, I don't know. Well, it's 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 a significant issue in veterinary medicine, where we have the skills, we have the knowledge to help and save or heal a patient, 
and external circumstances um, don't don't allow us as as caring professionals to do that. Oftentimes, it's you know in veterinary medicine, unfortunately, it's financial, um, but that's that's one of the issues too. And so all of those things can decrease our our capacity to do do our job. So or, if you look yeah. at yourself in the mirror. Uh, and mm-hmm. and say, all right, maybe I am suffering from burnout or compassion yeah. fatigue. Uh, are there resources that you can recommend? Absolutely. So the good news is, is our perfect. I mean, we are we are a group of a huge number of caring professionals, and not only do we care about our patients, but we care about each other. The first thing I would say is individually, if you're if you're interested, or if you're saying, I just wonder if I am or not, you can go to. Uh, www.proqol.org. That gives a link to the professional quality of life assessment. That's going to assess compassion, satisfaction, how how energized are we, and how how rewarded are we by our caring caring job. It's also going to measure secondary traumatic stress. It's going to measure burnout, which is going to give us our our compassion fatigue score. Um, but you can you can see where you sit on that scale for compassion fatigue and, uh, and burnout. If, if you score high, remember burnout, we just, we've got to decrease job demands in some way, certainly going to our, our team members, uh, you know, our leadership and, and saying, uh, you know, I, I took this assessment, you know, I'm here. Can we, can we sit down and talk about, you know, what, what's going on with the rest of the team? That's an option individually though. There's the Shanty Project, um, which works on skills of resiliency. They're <clears throat> they're out of uh, Stanford, I believe. There's the Veterinary Hope Foundation. Um, they're a, a group uh, that is sponsoring uh, kind of group group sessions together. Um, there's Addie Reinhardt's uh, Mentor Vet for uh, for younger veterinarians, which is evidence based and very effective. Uh, there's the Vin foundation uh, vets for vets peer program which i'm a part of that in the vets in recovery so if you happen to be a veterinarian uh, with an alcohol or substance use uh, issue feel please please join us there but there are a number of different groups there your state vma uh will shout out to the florida vmas uh group the well-being uh well-being committee we have a lot of resources there and of course our our national organization the avma has great well-being refor- resources and then, of course, uh, not one more vet is yeah. out there as well. Yeah. So those are great, great places to start. Indeed, they are. And there's so much more to talk about. I, fe- I felt like we just did only start. Dr. Philip Richman, thank you so much for being a part of the Fear Free podcast. Thank you. Now, if you're already registered for Fear Free, be sure to keep up with all the Fear Free happenings. Access new toolbox items and find all the additional courses at fearfreepets.com. And of course, if you're not registered, find everything you need to get started at fearfreepets.com. If you're a member interested in pursuing veterinary practice certification, get more details on the same site under the Veterinary About section. And if you're a pet parent who just stumbled upon this podcast, consider yourself lucky to get the insight you just did and learn more about resources we have for you at Fear Free Happy Homes. I'm Steve Dale.